Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as we come before your word here this day, that you would open our hearts to receive from you that which is inspired in the sacred text. And Lord, take your inspired word and illuminate it, that it may uh, animate life deep within our hearts and our souls. Lord, we confess before you that we are prone to wander. We are, we, we are the sheep and you are the shepherd. And we need you, Lord, to, to guide us. We need you, Lord, through, through your word to call us unto yourself, to make us one with your people and one with you, and to, to, to sharpen us that we can be your instrument in this age, to wash us that we can walk holy and clean before you. Lord, sanctify us by your word here today, I pray, and we ask this together in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, we are going to be picking up our study in the post-exilic texts of the Hebrew Bible. I have been working on preaching through this important section of the Hebrew Bible in a series that I have entitled, Faithful to Fulfill. And I believe that title sort of captures what these texts are about, these post-exilic texts that they're ultimately getting at this main theme of the faithfulness of God and his fulfilling of his promises. These books are telling the story of the faithfulness of God in spite of sin, in spite of struggle, in spite of suffering, in spite of all sorts of different stuff. That said, would you please open up your Bibles and find your way to the book of Haggai, or as the Hebrews would have known, Haggai. Haggai, Haggai is the book that we will be in this morning. You have a printed outline that will help you to follow along with the message. You have those main points on the outline so that you can revisit the sermon and more importantly reflect on the scripture. Before we get into the outline, I want to take some time to provide some context for today's message and this section of scripture in which we find ourselves this Lord's Day morning. By way of introduction, we began this sermon series actually this summer in 2021. Uh, I, I opened up this series, we began exploring this section of the Hebrew Bible, as I've said, that's known as the post-exilic section. This post-exilic section contains a handful of different books that we call the post-exilic books of Scripture. They are called post-exilic because they were written during and speak to this era of history that is known as the post-exile. So it is post after this era known as the exile. So exile is getting kicked out. You know, there's an exit, there's the door, you know, you leave the building. Ek is to go out. Exile is a going out of the land of promise. The post-exile is a coming back into the land of promise. So this is a history, this is a section in which the people of God are coming back into the land of promise. I was drawn to this section of the sacred text of, of Scripture in particular, just thinking about the season that is upon us as a culture. Uh, we have 66 books in the Bible, and, and pastorally, when we're teaching through sections of the Bible, we think about what's going on in the life of the nation, what's going on in the life of the congregation, and, and we think about what various books of the Bible are dealing with and which ones sort of match well, and then we pick those texts and we teach through those texts and trust that God, through the power of his word, will have his way with us. And, so as we were in the summer, that was around the time that the government was talking about uh, the mask mandates being uh, lifted and, uh, you know, being able to go back inside. And we had been gathering as a, as a church outside and doing the mask and the spatial distance thing for quite a while. And the government said, you know, it's, it's, time, it, you know, it's time for things to start going back and things reopening. And, and uh, oh, there's a, there's a section in the Bible that's about going back and things sort of reopening. It's the post-exile. So let's study the post-exile. That'll, maybe, maybe it'll provide some, you know, some parallels for us. I don't know, maybe. And, and, and by golly, thus far, it, it has. And so as, as we had that, okay, you can, you know, we're going to go back inside. We're going to take our masks off. And then, oh, to, you know, put the mask back on. And, you know, oh, you know, maybe the schools are opening. Maybe they're not. And mass mandates are back and now there's not, you know there's not just covid but there's delta there's even a lambda and a mu uh, are we going to go through the whole greek alphabet i don't know and you know people are getting divided and they're fighting about this and of course our politicians they're they're helping a lot aren't they uh, not to mention the media and so 
you know, things are just like, hey, we're going to go back. And, you know, yeah, it's, uh, this, is, this isn't fun, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, post-exile, this is so great because they get the green light to go back and it, it's not smooth sailing. And as they're going back and they're figuring out, you know, the quote-unquote new normal, all around them is erupting chaos in, in the world at the time of uh, Haggai. And so, too, that's what we see. It's not just the division within uh, the, the nation trying to figure out what the new normal is, but the nations outside are raging. Israel, Iran, Afghanistan, China, Korea, all of this crazy stuff that's swirling around, war and rumor of war, and, and, and I'm in this section of the scripture. We're in this section of the scripture, and I'm going, oh, this is, this is great, you know, this like history repeating itself, and we can take comfort and learn from a people who were going through something similar, albeit I would say theirs was much worse than ours. So exile, post-exile, exile is an important moment in the history of God's people Israel. Exodus is an important moment in the history of God's people Israel. In our nation, we think of major moments that have shaped our country and our culture. We, we, we think of both the good and the bad that have shaped our culture in, in making the United States of America. We think of the various figures in our history and movements and conflicts and war and peace and building and tearing down and rebuilding, all of those things that have defined us and the things ahead of us that will redefine us, no doubt. Because we are a, a country with a, with a mixed bag of things, in fact, when you think about the people that form this nation, you have natives and immigrants and travelers and colonialists and peaceful pilgrims and greedy opportunists and slave masters and kidnapped and trafficked people, our history is quite a complex history. And the history shapes the way that we live in the present. It impacts how we view things in our, our lives. And when things happen in the news, it shapes the way we view those things, no doubt. Some events in history and some events before us that will take place this week, we all come together on and we'll interpret it the same way. Other events, given our complex history, we could be looking at the same thing and having totally different experiences, going, oh, this is horrible, and other people like, yeah, this is awesome, you know, and, and yet we're in the same nation. So, so we have that reality where you, we interpret things differently because of this complex in which we find ourselves. I'm reminded of this as it is uh, 9-12, and yesterday was 9-11. We had the uh, the, the, the anniversary of 9-11. And good people of this country all agreed that 9-11 was sheer wickedness. It was absolutely horrible. That isn't one of those things that take place and people have different reactions to. We all looked at that and said, this is horrible. And I don't know about you, but yesterday, just reflecting on it, I was brought back to feelings. I was reminded where I was when it happened. And just having flashbacks on these things. And we look back as a nation and, and we agree, that was bad. We look back as a nation and we agree on other things in, in our history that was bad, like slavery, that was bad. Ending slavery, that's good. Emancipation, good. Terrorism, bad. We, we all agree on that. Likewise, for the people of Israel in this, in, in this era of post-exile and throughout the history of the people of Israel, there were certain things that, that they viewed and they had different opinions on. Uh, Israel literally had tribes. We talk about tribalism. Well, they literally had tribes, and their tribes were tribal, and their 12 tribes actually argued and bickered about various things and various rumblings in history, just like we do today. And, and so Israel, though, would come together like we can and say, 9-11, bad. Israel would come together and say, exile, bad. Being homeless, that was bad. When Assyria and Babylon wiped us out, jacked us, took our stuff, and kicked us out, raped our daughters, enslaved our sons, tortured us, that was bad. Exile, bad. Post-exile, good. Post-exile, good. Exile, bad. Exodus, being liberated from, from slavery in Egypt, I mean, that, 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 that's good. So by way of introduction, a couple of things in the history of Israel that are, are just black and white kinds of issues are important for you to have in mind. And we'll go through just four really quick by way of introduction here. Covenant, Exodus, Conquest, Exile. Okay, so covenant is where the history begins. God goes to the historical figure Abram, who he renames Abraham. He promises Abram that they will have a land of promise. His 
progeny will have a land of promise and they will prosper. So, so he promises Abram, you're going to have a progeny, you're going to have a seed, you're going to have children, your children will have children, they, they, will, they will become a nation, the nation will have a land, and that, that land, that place, and that progeny will be for the prosperity of the earth. He will use them for a reversing of the fall of creation, the war, the dysfunction, the hatred, the evil. He will use them to reverse those things and bring peace. So here's this promise. I'm going to use you. I'm going to use your seed. I'm going to take you to this land, and I'm going to do these things. Covenant. That's a word that means promise. Now, now his children have children, the children have children, and you follow the history, they end up in slavery, and you say, what about God's promise to them? And God sends the prophet Moses who comes, and he's an abolitionist prophet who liberates the people. They go uh, uh, in the Exodus, they are emancipated, they are rescued, and all of Israel looks at that history and says, that was good. Now, Israel receiving this great gift of emancipation, however, isn't faithful before God, and so Israel wanders in the wilderness for a period of 40 years before they are brought to the land of promise. Meanwhile, in the land of, of, of what would become the land of promise, there was great wickedness, there was evil, there was torture, there was shenanigans. We look at what's going on in Afghanistan. We hear reports of people being beaten and amputated and whatnot, and you say, that, that's evil, something needs to be done about that. And so too in that land there was great wickedness, and so God brought his people to that land, not in fulfillment of the promise, but practically using that promise to bring jurisprudence or justice to that land. And so we, we move from this, this exodus to the conquest, and in the conquest, he brings justice to that land. He casts wickedness out of that land, establishes the people in the land of promise, and they're in the land of promise, right? They're, this is where the, the covenant is going to come to fruition. I will put the progeny in the place. I will bring prosperity, and that's going to flow to the nations, and redemption is going to come because the people are going to be a priesthood, mediators between the fallen creation and the holy God of creation, it's going to be great. And, and, and God gave them that covenant to Abraham. And, and God dropped other covenants on them through Moses and through the great King David, that there would be a seed of David who would sit on the throne. And so here's conquest. Here they're in the land. Praise God. This is so good. But just like in the Exodus, how they tripped on God and ended up wandering in the wilderness, this happened once again. And now you have exile. Now you have exile. These are, this is this is black and white. This is, this is, you know, positive, negative. This is proton, electron, neutron. I mean, this is just like, you know, basic. We all agree on these events when it comes to the ancient understanding uh, at the time. At the time of Haggai, everyone would say, covenant, man, that was good. Exodus, that was good. Oh, the wandering, that was kind of sad that we did that. Conquest, oh, that was crazy. Oh, and then exile, we got kicked out. Now, God was faithful through all four of those moments. And he is going to be faithful again as he comes to the people in exile. So when we kicked off this series, Faithful to Fulfill, we began in the book of Ezra, because Ezra is a book of history. And these post-exilic texts have two different genres. There's historical books and there's prophetic books. So we started with the history, and we're reading Ezra, and I preached through Ezra chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and then we get up to chapter 5 in Ezra, and we read this. When the prophets Haggai... And the prophet Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jewish people who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. So we, we, we got up to Ezra chapter 5 in this history, post-exile. Okay? We get up there, and, and we opened up Ezra, because I'm preaching through it, and we read about the prophets. And so what we did was, er, we just took a break on the narrative, and we jumped over to Haggai. And we finished the first chapter of Haggai. In fact, in that sermon, we were actually outside, and now we're back inside, which is uh, cool, and now we're in chapter, where, where we left off, we're in chapter 2, and I'm going to preach through Haggai, by the, you know, if God so wills, I'll preach through Haggai, and I'll preach through Zechariah, and then we'll come back to Ezra 5.1, we'll come back to this, and we'll pick up 5.1, 5.2, and we'll, we'll flow, because we're trying to wrap ourselves around what was the narrative and what was the prophecy going on at the time. So Ezra chapter 5, it opens with talk of the Nevi'iah, that is the prophets, Zechariah, Haggai. They are said to have prophesied, that's what prophets do, they prophesy, hit navili, 
So, so the Nevaya offer hit Navidi, and, and here we are with Nevaya. We're here with Haggai right in front of us. And, and so Haggai's given us prophecy. And now when you hear the word prophecy, often people think like psychics, crystal balls, the future, tell me what I'm going to eat tomorrow type of stuff. Foretelling. Prophets do foretelling. They tell you about the future to be sure, but prophets do foretelling as well. So there's foretelling and there's forthtelling. The vast majority of prophetic genre is more on the forthtelling. That is to say, they tell forth the revelation of God. They're covenant enforcers. The things that Moses had dropped on the people, Torah, the prophets come and they, they, they preach that word that was given to them. They take the word of God that was revealed and they speak it forth to the people and call them to repentance and faith. And then they do some foretelling stuff and that's, you know, that, we, we really like that stuff. And people start drawing charts and getting crazy and Mark of the Beast and, you know, uh, all that, the foretelling. People get really excited about that. But the foretelling is ever so important. Now, in the case of Haggai, he does both. He foretells and he foretells. He foretells all this messianic stuff, promises about a future temple. He has all these messianic overtones about someone who's going to come and, and, and be like the, you know, the ultimate salvation for the people. And then he's doing a lot of foretelling to the people as they're coming back. You guys have been given a gift. You've been given a gift. You post-exilic people. You were in exile, and you deserved that. You earned that, and you did nothing to be back in the land. The prophets come, and they remind the people of that. Check yourselves. You guys didn't do anything to deserve to be back in this place. In fact, we saw in Ezra that when word was given that they could go back by the providence of God orchestrating the nations in such a way that they would be able to go back, that the people didn't go. So we're reading about a remnant here. Just a small, ragtag group of people who actually went back to the land. Just a little remnant. And that, and that just reminds you, like, we don't even deserve to be here. Like, our team didn't even come. You know, they sent the bench. That's how serious they are about this game. And so the prophets come, and they're like, hey, uh, uh, we've we got to call you out. We've got to call you out. We've got to call you to the word that has been given to us. You have been called post-exile to go back to the land. And not to go back to the land, just to kick it in the land and hey, you know, but to build the temple. Because again, you're supposed to be the priesthood. You're supposed to be the mediators between God and man. You're supposed to be the, the ones who steward the temple, the place of worship that brings people back to paradise. The temple was a picture of paradise lost. The temple is a picture of Eden. The, the priesthood uh, is the mediator that's bringing you back to what we lost in our sin and our rebellion against God. You've been brought to this place to build that, that prosperity, that spiritual prosperity that was to come to the nations. That's what you are there for. And when they get back into the land, they're, they're met with opposition. It wasn't going to be easy wasn't going to be easy. They're met with opposition. There's external opposition. And, and, and then there's all this internal division and funkiness that's going on. And so they stopped. They stopped. They, they went. They started building the temple. And then they started tripping on each other. And they're like, you know what? This is just too hard. And they stopped building the sacred temple. And instead, they went to Home Depot. And they started building their own cribs. You know, guys are like, I got an idea. You know, this temple, man, this is, this is a lot of work. There's, we're fighting with each other. How about, how, about, how about we just go build our suburbs, you know? Let's, let's just go to Crane Barrel. Let's go to Crane Barrel. Pick out your own, you know, fixtures, your own, your own couches. You do you. Let's, just, let's do that. I'm going to go to Ikea. Uh, the meatballs and, the, and, the, and the, you know, the ice cream cones and whatever, I'm going to pick up some stuff, and I'm just going to do my own thing. So they're busy furnishing their own homes. And Haggai comes, you have your Bibles open to Haggai, we're going to be in chapter 2, but if you look back at verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, consider your ways. What, what are you doing? You're not listening to the Lord. That's the title of today's message, in fact, listen to the Lord. Haggai comes to speak forth the word of the Lord that has been given to them. You know, you, you know, okay, you know from, prompt, from that from that covenant to that, that exodus, right? You, you know to that conquest, to that exile, you know why you are here, post-exilic people. And, and, and the prophet came and told you, you're supposed to be building the temple. 
Haggai, Ezra, Zerubbabel, those, the leaders, they, they had their work cut out for them. The people didn't like having their sin called out. Instead of turning to God, they were telling gossip, dividing the tribes, diving into transgression. Haggai responds to that with revelation. He points the people to God. As he is doing in chapter 1, he continues to do in chapter 2, he starts pointing the people to God. He's not pointing the finger at them, mind you. He's pointing them to God. He's, plead, he's pleading with them on behalf of the Father. The Father loves you. The Father is here to fulfill his promise. The Father has brought you back. You're a little finger pointing. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. But, but look, look at how good he is. Look at what he has done for you. And so he speaks to the people on behalf of the Lord to, to plead with them. Listen to the Lord. This brings you to the first subpoint on the outline. Let God ask. Haggai reveals some questions that God raises. Now, in chapter 1, in front of you, really quick, chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai. Verse 2, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 3, the word of the Lord came by Haggai. Verse 5, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 7, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, declares the Lord of hosts. So God says, God says, God says, God says, chapter 1. And in chapter 2, that just continues. God is going to keep saying stuff and asking questions of the people. Chapter 2, verse 1, it begins with a time marker. And that brings you to the first sub-point on your outline under let God ask, what's the time? What's going on? What's, what's cracking right here? Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Okay, so that, that's the same nomenclature, you know, the prophet is saying, and the word of the Lord's coming to him, and he's saying. So, in other words, he's not, he's not the one speaking. The word has come to him, and he's the messenger delivering it. But look at this, the, the time stamp here, this 21st of the seventh month. Why is that significant? Why is that in the revelation? Why does God want us to know that? Well, it lets us know that this is about seven weeks or two months that had passed from chapter 1. So chapter 1, we get an oracle. Chapter 2, we get a second oracle, a second revelation. And in between these two, a span of two months had passed. On a Jewish calendar, the seventh month is known as the month of Tishri, which is, uh, which is our October. So scholars date this to the 21st of the seventh month, which would be October the 17th in the year 520. Now, 520, what, what's going on in the world around 520? I think it's important when we're reading the Bible to also connect it to what's going on around the world. So let's hang right here with chapter 2, verse 1, and let's zoom off of the, the land of promise. What's going on in other places of the world in 520 that's sort of significant today? What's significant today about the 520s? Well, one thing comes to mind. There was a really rich and privileged Indian prince, Siddhartha Gautama, who became known as the Buddha, who in the 520s, rebelled against his parents, abandoned his wife, abandoned his child, and went off to find himself. And he became the enlightened one, uh, later recognized as the Buddha, later recognized as the founder of Buddhism. Mil millions of adherents of Buddhism today around the world. Now, I note this for historical context so that you can go, oh, wow, while this is going on, there's other religions that are forming. Isn't that interesting? And I raise that as well, not just for global awareness of you know, sort of connecting some history tidbits here, but also, because it's my job up here to equip you for ministry, I'm also raising this for apologetic reasoning and resourcing, because a lot of times when you're sharing your faith with other people, when you're talking about things Christian, people will say things like, well, there's older religions than Christianity. Have you heard that before? And in fact, uh, I looked up in Wikipedia just for kicks, because it's kind of a common source, and under the entry on Buddhism, I read, and I quote, the history of Buddhism goes back almost six centuries before Christianity, making it one of the oldest religions still being practiced, end quote. And, and, and I get, you know, I'll be sharing with my friends or, you know, strangers and whatever about Jesus. They'll go, but there were older religions. You know, you're kind of Johnny come lately, and so yours must not be true. Now, one thing to note in this is just a matter of logic. When you say that something's older, therefore it must be true and yours isn't, this is technically a fallacy in logic argumentum ad antiquatum, which is an appeal to antiquity. This, well, that can't be true because this is older. Uh, and, and that's just easy to show absurd because there's a lot of old people who say crazy stuff, but you can't, you know, pull the age card. What is this ageism? <laughs> you know, what is this age stuff? This, you know, everyone's all about these isms these days. So you can say that's just ageism. And, 
In fact, that's all that it is. Saying something's older doesn't make it true. Okay, there's lots of old things that are just patently absurd. Now, the thing about Christianity, though, when this is raised, this objection, is that Christianity is an Abrahamic religion, an Abrahamic faith. And Abram predates Buddha. Uh, Haggai predates Buddha. Like this storyline that I'm telling you, covenant, exodus, conquest, exile, uh, this, this predates all of that. So if you're, if you're making an appeal to something being older must be true, well, this predates that. Would you like to give your heart to the Lord now? <laughs> no, 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 because that objection ultimately was just a smokescreen. Even further than going back in history to, to Abraham and, 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 and to Exodus and to conquest and to exile, the story of Abraham begins with the beginning. The story of Abram is found in Genesis, and Genesis begins within the beginning God created. The story of Abram goes to the story of Adam. The God of Adam, the God of creation, is the God of Abram. And so there's, there's nothing that predates that because God is eternal. There's one eternal triune God who's Father, Son, and Spirit, who created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing, who poured his love into the world that he created, whose love was unrequited as creation rebelled against him, and he responded, he responded, the giver of life, who gave life and love to the creation, responded in grace and mercy, being patient with this rebellion. And now the rebellion, as a result of rebelling against the one who gives life, the rebellion is met with death. As a result of rebelling against the one who gave harmony to creation, harmony is now, is now ruined and the creation's in disharmony. Disharmony, dysfunction, death are all a result of the rebellion of the creation against the creator. But God responds in grace. And what he promised to Abram involves actually bringing one who will come through that place, in that people, a prosperity among the nations that involves God himself, God the Son, incarnating in the very genetic line, the progeny of Abram, in the very genetic line, in the progeny of the great King David, to come and to offer ultimate exodus to creation that is out in the wilderness, out in sin and darkness, and to reconcile them to himself. And so when, when people come and they raise these kinds of objections, it's, we can address those objections. We can address the logical fallacy. We can take them back in history and show them. But ultimately, what they need to hear is about God's love and about the fall and about their sin and about the Savior who has come in human flesh, died in their place because rebellion against the giver of life is met with death. And there is one who has come, who has died for them, who gives his life for them and will save them. They'll lay aside these silly objections and repent of their sin and come to him. He will save them. Now, that's, that was a digression. We've got to get back into Haggai for Pete's sake. Let's get back into Haggai. So global history, there's other religions that are starting. Uh, you know, I have, I have uh, numbers of, of, of encyclopedias of world religions. I mean, there's thousands and thousands, and people keep creating them. Humans are never going to stop doing this sort of a thing. But, but, but let, us not, let us not confuse the fact that there are different opinions, that there's not actually a, a truth. And the truth is that God has responded to the creation in love and has provided a way of salvation for the creation. And we are reading the history of that story. And here it is. He's sending them back to the land. He's sending them to build the temple. That temple that would get a little facelift from Herod that Jesus himself would walk into. This is, this is the trajectory. This is the story that we're reading about. So, okay, that's what's going on with, with this era and Haggai stepping in. And there's two months that have passed between chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, he's like, what are you all doing? You're, like, why, you're going to Ikea? You're going to Crate and Barrel? Why aren't you guys building the temple? Like, what's going on? Two months have passed, and they're still just kicking it. They didn't, they, they, they didn't listen. They, 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 weren't, they weren't listening. So now it's October the 17th, okay? It, 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 it's, five, it's 520. Now, now, now we zoom in what's going on in Israel's history. Here's a little graph, and you can kind of, you, you, you see, okay, the, the temple altar was rebuilt in 536. We talked about the significance of altars. I, I did a theology of altars. And then from 535 to 520, right, the, the rebuild was on a COVID lockdown, I guess, and people just weren't doing anything about it. And there's all this internal uh, drama and division and, and people hating on each other and, and divides going on. And then external bad guys, the nations are rumbling and all the rest. And then in comes Haggai, and he starts to instruct the people. He starts to speak to them. And it's October the 17th. 
It's 520. This week is actually significant. It is the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, what the Hebrews knew, knew as Sukkot. Sukkot is significant because this is the same time, Sukkot, when Solomon actually dedicated the temple. He dedicated the temple on Sukkot. So the fact that it's Sukkot, and they know this, this is their history, just like everybody knew yesterday was 9-11, uh, they know this is Sukkot. Sukkot is when the temple was built, and we are in Sukkot, and what are we doing? We're just kicking it. Sukkot is one of, uh, of the three Shalash Ralagim, which are uh, pilgrimage festivals. They have three of them, where everyone's supposed to go to Jerusalem. Well, you know, three times a year, they go to Jerusalem, and they go to the temple. Like, we are in the holiday where you're supposed to be at the temple. We are being reminded that we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. What's the time? It's Sukkot. Y'all know better. Where's the temple? That's the next subpoint. The Solomonic temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586, as you saw a moment ago on the graph. Now it's 520. You guys have been home for 16 years. Where's the temple? Solomon built his temple in seven years. You could, you could have had at least two Solomon temples by now. What are you doing? Where is the temple? What's the time? Sukkot? Sukkot is when we go to the temple. And we can't because you guys didn't do what you're supposed to do. So the prophet is bringing it. And, it, and it's happening, like, in God's providence in Sukkot. And you're going, oh, wow, like, oh, you know, he's, he's, bring, he's, he's bringing the law to them and saying, look, look, you guys, look. Okay, verse 2, let's pick up where we left off. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, to Yeshua, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, a high priest, and to the remnant of the, of the people, saying, who, who is left among you who saw the temple in his former glory, and how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So the prophet, he, he's, you know, he's not messing around. Um, you know, pe people aren't going to be happy about, about this, uh, this, this post in social media he's making here because he's just, he's being blunt with them. He's calling them out. What is going on? What are you doing? Why aren't, why aren't, why aren't you guys building? Why are you guys divided? What are you divided over? Of the many things that they were divided over, one of the chief sort of issues that was going on was the, the older people who had seen Solomon's temple were complaining that the new temple that they were building wasn't as, as, as grand. They, they weren't happy with the local leaders. They weren't happy with the decisions of the government. They, they didn't like the decisions that were being made, and, and so they're grumbling about it. We want Solomon. We don't want you. If Solomon were here, here's what he would, here's what he would do. We want it like the good old days. We want it like Burger King. We want to have it our way. Look at this. Look at this picture of the Solomonic Temple. 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. You have a little comparison here of American football field and the temple from a bird's eye view, so you can kind of get an idea of how, how big it was. Now, the picture, of course, doesn't do justice. Uh, uh, any, any more than a picture of, of, of really anything does justice. Have you experienced that where you're like, oh, that's, that's great, and you take your phone out, and you're like, yeah, and then, and then you, uh, that doesn't, it doesn't look like that, you know? People take, foodie people take a picture of their food or whatever, and you go, yeah, but it's not the same, it's the smell and everything. So the picture doesn't do a total justice to this. And, and the prophet jumps in, and he's like, who's, who's left among you anyway? Really? Really? Like, how many of y'all even saw it? Uh, and, and, and really, is, is what we're building now, does it, is it really that that whack? I mean, are you, are you, like, come on. Scholars note that they would have been at least 70 years old from that temple because it was destroyed in 586 B.C. Uh, Haggai is speaking some 66 years later, so there's probably not a lot of them that had actually lived, uh, had seen it. Life expectancy back then wasn't that long. There's probably not a lot of them there, so he's calling out that fact. Like, there's probably a lot of people who haven't seen it, and they're raising Cain about nothing. Besides, here's the thing. You guys have been here for 16, 17 years, uh, when the foundation was laid in Zerubbabel's time, Ezra, Zerubbabel, uh, why aren't you guys building? Why aren't you guys bettering? Why, uh, why aren't you doing anything? You're not building and bettering. You're bickering and biting. So, so the whole thing now is just stopped. Instead of getting behind Ezra, they're standing in Ezra's way, and, and the people are attacking, and, and, and then you got these enemies outside. Like, what are you, you guys, God brought you back. What are you doing? There is a proverb that when people can't kill your dreams, They'll assassinate your character. And Ezra's character was on the line. He's being attacked. People have, have given in. Ezra's tired. He's tired. There's only so much that someone can take being under the gun. 
And then, and then, God speaks. And Haggai comes. What a relief that would have been to Ezra and Zerubbabel. God comes and he speaks. He confronts the complacency. He confronts the hatred. And he goes, and he goes for it. He starts unfolding it. He starts exposing that hatred. You know, we have a proverb, haters going to hate in our day. Ezra was dealing with that. He was facing hatred. Haggai now will come under fire by the haters because he's, he's being blunt with them. So no doubt he will come under the same fire that the other leaders have. The haters will come for him. But by the grace of God, actually, as we will see in our study, God will take the haters and the sinners and turn them into lovers and sons. He will save them. Haggai will usher in a grand revival, as we will see. Spoiler alert, we'll see that in the series. We, 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 con we, we continue with some modern proverbs here by way of just kind of seeing parallels. Haters going to hate. The word haters, in fact, has been turned into an acronym in our day, H-A-T-E-R-S, having anger towards everyone reaching success, they say. So you can see this in Ezra and in Haggai. The people, they started to have some success. They're back in the land. Whoa, we're building the foundation. Whoa, this is crazy, you know. And, and then all of a sudden, as they're starting to have some success, wha-bam, people start coming in and problems start surfacing. No matter how good you are, people will stand against you. People will misrepresent you, specifically when you are doing God's work. So let me encourage the body here. When you're doing God's work, just trust there's going to be opposition. Ask any parent about this in this room. Uh, when you're doing God's work of parenting, right, are your children like, Thank you, Father, for pointing me to the Lord. You're right. I shouldn't dishonor you. I will finish my food, brush my teeth, and go to bed, as you have said. And I will meditate on the catechism till I fall asleep. No, no. They, they don't comply. They don't comply. There's bickering and biting and all the rest when you're trying to do God's work. Ezra's doing God's work. Haggai's doing God's work, and they're catching flack for it. They're catching flack. This ain't Solomon's. This is whack. What are you guys doing? You know, what are you guys doing? Incidentally, have you ever met a hater doing it better than the person who's actually trying to build? Typically not. They're just chilling and chopping it down while those who are laboring to build are doing everything that they can. Often the, the haters are like crazy fans screaming at a player in the actual game who is doing the work. Throw the ball! Throw the ball! You know, like, I'm trying, man. Like, you know... He's just sucking down the Slurpee, doing nothing. You know, here's the thing, though. These modern proverbs that we have, having anger towards everyone, reaching success, haters going to hate type stuff, the, that's just conventional wisdom about human behavior. But what we're surfacing, what we're seeing here in the text of the Holy Scripture, we're seeing saints who are feeling fatigue from doing God's will. And we're seeing a problem isn't just a, a, a matter of, of not having enough proverbs or wisdom in their heads, but they really need to be called to repentance. And that's what Haggai is doing. He's speaking forth, calling them to repent. Okay, let's just deal with this. How many of you all saw Solomon's temple anyway? Really? Really? You, it, oh, it, really? Okay. Okay. Now, now, if you saw Solomon's temple, what made Solomon's temple special? Hebrews know their Bible. First Kings chapter 8. Let me put it in front of you guys. It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priest couldn't stand and minister because of the cloud and the glory that filled the house of the Lord. What, what made Solomon's temple special? God did. God did. It, was, it wasn't that his foundation was bigger, his bricks were cooler, his towers were higher. It was because God was present there. We, we studied the theology of altars and the theology of temples. What made it special was because God was there. It didn't matter if it was in Baldwin Hills, Ladera Heights, Beverly Hills, some nice neighborhood, or whether it was in some shady place. It didn't matter if it was a big house or a shack in Fresno, sorry Fresnonians, or a, a, a Home Depot shack in my backyard in Inglewood, or a, a homeless tent in Westchester Park made out of Hank's pizza boxes. It, it, didn't, it doesn't matter. If God shows up in a tent in Westchester Park, I'll take that over a house in the hills any day, every day. Solomon's temple was amazing because the Lord of glory manifested himself theophanically in that place. And why did he do that? To attract tourists to come there and buy merch? 
and take selfies? No, because they're a priesthood who are mediating to creation that will die and be separated from God forever lest they repent of their sin and come to faith in him. They are mediators to call the creation to be forgiven of their sin. And that temple is a place that is picturing sacrifice and grace and mercy and, and truth and revelation. And people come there and their lives are forever changed. That, that place is a place of worship. And so when you come, your eyes shouldn't be on the externals. Your, your eyes should be on the internals. I'm reminded of the contemporary song by Rat, Matt Redman, just kind of confronting some of the superficiality and shallowness in contemporary North American faith. And he drives it down in this song when he says, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll, I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. Matt, Matt Redmond continues, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. One of the things that I've deeply appreciated about the madness of COVID and quarantines and shutdowns and bureaucrats and all the rest is it brought people back to a place of thinking about what's essential and non-essential. And to be sure, people are divided over what they think is essential and, and non-essential. In particular, our government at the beginning of this, when they shut down churches but left open a whole bunch of other shenanigans, we, we thought, well, that, that you know, I think the church is an essential place. But for us as believers as well to kind of process, okay, well, what's essential to us? You know, we stopped doing some things. Awana, kids' church, men's group, women's group, retreats, coffee, you know. Remember that delicious coffee we used to serve? <laughs> Again, you kind of go, yeah, it was like Kirkland or something. You know, you know, people are still stopping at Starbucks before they come because it wasn't that great, you know. And so Haggai's like, it, it really wasn't that great. Come on, you guys, you know. And, and we stopped doing some things. He said, look, the Bible doesn't command us to make coffee. The Bible doesn't command us to have women's groups and men's groups or this or that. The Bible doesn't command us to not wear a mask or wear a mask. Or, you know, what does the Bible command us to do? To preach Christ crucified, to pray, to sing, to fellowship, right? To, 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 to make disciples. And so in, in the midst of all of this, you know, I'd hear people say things like, you know, the churches are closed. or We're not closed. We are doing the essentials. The church is not the building. The church is the people. We're doing what we've been commanded to do. And in, in the midst of that, what was helpful is it helped to focus God's people on the essentials and really to see, is it all about you? Am I satisfied in the, in the essentials or not? And it, and it helped us to see others who got into the non-essentials. I mean, pulpits and churches turning into what looked like the evening news. And, and I don't care if, whichever side you're on, I could find examples of it where pulpits just turned into sort of political punditry, you know, and, and, and you go like, what are you guys doing? I don't, I don't hear you calling the body of Christ together in unity and calling out this madness that's dividing them and keeping them from the mission. That's what Haggai's doing. He's going, what are you got? You've let these divides, you've let all of this come in. You're sitting on your rears. You're, you're not going out. You're not doing your mission. With regard to building the temple, we know in this dispensation that Christ has come and we are now his temple and he's called on us to build this temple in the making of disciples. Are we doing that or are we being overconsumed by the divides of our day that keep us panicked and fearful and attacking and biting and bickering and the rest? Or are we, are we in joy on the essentials of what Christ has called us to? The, I, the IMB estimates that every day, 150 5,473 people die without Christ every day. And I know believers who've never led anyone faith in Christ. Haggai says, what are you guys doing? I think to preach this word rightly in this day, we, we have to, it has to have the same force. Church, what are we doing? When we're more, when we're more excited about what's going on in the divides, and we've bought into the tribalism, what are we doing? Where is our joy? I can't wait to drink this cup with you. Every week, I think about coming, 
hearing the gospel preached in this cup. And over my dead body would we tolerate the sacred pulpit being turned into the punditry that we've seen in this age. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't have strong opinions on the stuff that's going on. That's not to say that at all. That's not to say that we shouldn't even, you know, divide over some of these issues and, and have strong words and strong opinions on these issues. What it is to say is that we have a mission that takes priority over all of this, and it is the building of the temple of the Holy Spirit of God in this age. And our passion and everything should be focused on that. Our passion should be on sharing the word of God and evangelizing. And many people are mistaking that for arguing religion or arguing uh, 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 politics. That is not evangelism. Evangelism is preaching Christ. It's everlasting life. People were tripping in, in Ezra and Zerubbabel and Haggai's day. That leads you to the next point. Who's tripping? The third verse. The third verse. Go back to the third verse. Who's left among you who saw the temple in all its glory? How do you see it now? How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Ooh, he's, he, you know, he, he's gone for it. His, his uh, Twitter feed's going to get lit up doing this. You know. now, now, remember what we saw in Ezra. I'll put it in front of you. In Ezra 3.11, we saw who was tripping. There were people who were there as they are building the foundation who were throwing, throwing shade on it, like, you know, this is whack. This isn't the same. They're crying. They're whining about it or whatever. Think about, think about what Hurricane Ida did to Louisiana this past week. Right? Can you imagine the churches that got wiped out? And, 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 you know, homes and businesses and just people died, you know. And then a, a church in Louisiana is getting together and they're like, all right, we got to do this. And people are making Home Depot runs and they're, they're building and they get everything and they get it back. They, they build it back and we're coming to worship. And, yeah, we ordered the carpet and we get the carpet and people come that Sunday like, you know, I'm not feeling this carpet. This carpet is whack. I think we should have went with an earth tone. You know, you go, after all that we've been through, you're going to come and bicker about the carpet not being an earth tone or whatever it is, you know? Like, you would go, that, man, that's some, that's some pettiness. That's, that's some pettiness. What are you talking about? After all we've been, we were, we were exiled. Like, are, we shouldn't even be alive. Like, are you serious right now? Haggai 1.9, when he dropped that bomb on him, because my house lies desolate while, while each of you runs his own house. Right? You're, you're like, oh, Solomon's Temple, you know, whatever. But you're blinging your houses out. Maybe, maybe, maybe this, this would be nice if you guys were spending your time actually being on mission. Uh, some, something else to point out is that, as I've already pointed out, uh, something to remind you of is that Solomon's Temple was beautiful not because of Solomon. It was beautiful because God showed up there. And another thing to point out here is that this is not Solomon's Temple. This is Ezra's Rubbable's Temple. This is Nehemiah's temple. It's not Solomon's temple, right? And they didn't have Solomon's money. Let's just be blunt, okay? You want Solomon's temple, but you don't have Solomon's money. That's, that's just, that's how that goes, you know? Like, this is a different era. Israel was bawling out of control when they built that temple, okay? And, 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 and this is a different era. We're broke. We should be dead, okay? So when you go to, a, when you're homeless and you're hungry and you go to the soup kitchen, you're not like, you guys don't have any fillets back there? No, we have soup. Ah, uh, I want fillet. No, no, you get soup, you will be fed by soup. Like, it was a modest temple, but, you know, they'll add to it. Herod comes down the line and, you know, kind of soups it up. Haggai is exposing the pettiness and trying to draw them back in. Now, Haggai drops bombs, okay? But then notice what he does. To law, to, he brings gospel. You guys are out of line. You guys are wrong. You guys need to repent, knock it off, stop this. And then, and, and then he stops, you know, biting at them, and he moves into mercy and grace. Draw your eyes back at the text. Verse 4. Take courage, he says. Zerubbabel declares to the Lord, take courage. Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. They needed to hear this especially the leaders, so he focuses on Zerubbabel and Yeshua, Joshua there, because the leaders were doing the heavy lifting and they were taking a lot of shots. Typically, leaders are not criticized by folks who are doing more than them. It typically comes from those who are doing far less, and those, those leaders were tired. God says, take courage. The prophet is telling the people, listen to God's advice. That's the next point on your outline, and that's why I titled the message, Listen to the Lord, because he's calling them to listen. 
As he, as he speaks in the fourth verse and the fifth verse, we see he's calling the people to witness the truth. Witness the truth of, of, of what is going on. And I, I love here in this verse that he says, declares the Lord of hosts. If you have your own Bible, you might want to underline, declares the Lord of hosts. And here Haggai uses this word. I'll put it up in front of you in case you want to write it down in your Bibles. Yahweh Savaot. Haggai uses a specific name of God, Yahweh Savaot. And he uses a specific name of God because the, the, the ministers of the word of God, we are called not to preach a generic God. We're called to preach a God in his name. This is why when I talk about God on any given Sunday, you're going to hear me say, there's one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father and Spirit. And the historic Jesus of Nazareth is that eternal Son in the flesh. So that you know, like I'm talking about what God has done and who God is, and I'm telling you, God will forgive you of anything that you have ever done, and you can have everlasting life today in the name of this God. Haggai says, in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth. Don't get it twisted. I'm not talking about any old God. This is the name of the specific God. This is a Hebrew name for God that means the God of the armies. You guys have external enemies. There's all this craziness going on in the world. Let me remind you of the name of our Lord, Yahweh Sabaoth. So if you are scared, take courage, because the battle belongs to the Lord, and he's already won. I think of Elijah's servant in 2 Kings chapter 6, who was overcome with fear. And then the Lord opened his eyes in this passage. The Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw the hills. The hills were full of horses and chariots of fire. Oh, I, I didn't see that. Well, that's kind of encouraging. So then I, I'll just do what you told me to do, and I'll just keep on going, because I'm not actually in charge of this thing, and you are, and you already have chariots of fire all around the whole thing. Oh, you want us to build the temple? Okay, well, let's just get to building, because he's in, he's in charge. As for the promise, verse 5, Haggai 2, which I made with you when you came out of Egypt, Exodus, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Open your eyes. Look around you. The spirit of the living God dwells among you. The spirit of the God is with you. The spirit of God who was with Moses and Joshua and David, the same spirit who was in the tabernacle and in the temple of Solomon is here, he's here, his glory is here. The spirit, the person of the Godhead who in salvation history indwells the people of God, saving and sanctifying them. The Lord had promised to dwell among them. Exodus 29, I will dwell among you. Not by might, not by, my, by your power, but by my spirit. Zechariah, a post-exilic prophet we will study, says the Lord. The temple is going to be built. The spirit is here. You guys are being invited to participate. It will be done by his power, and you are invited to participate. When the creation fell, and man rebelled against God, and death and damnation came to humanity, God didn't send angels to witness to fallen humanity. He saved humans and sent them to go. What an honor. What a privilege. What a calling. No, no CEO position. No title in the earth compares to the title that we have been given as ambassadors of the king and dwelt by the Spirit, called to go. And he will triumph, which brings to the next point, will triumph. Draw your eyes at the text. Verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I'm going to shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of the nations and I will fill the house with glory, says the Lord of the hosts. I am going, I will, I will. That's foretelling. He's letting the people know what's going to happen. Haggai sees beyond. He sees in the future when God's going to make that temple as grand as Solomon. God, uh, God, God arguably reveals through Haggai even a, a future temple, an eschatological temple in the last days when he will come and he will shake the earth. The Lord shook the earth at Sinai in his revelation to Moses. The eschatological texts of the Bible speak of God shaking the nations. That is to say, judging the nations. And the nations will come and they will bring their wealth. They will humble themselves before the God of creation. That's the next sub-point. We move from will triumph to wealth and temple. Verse 8, we read, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. I mean, God's the creator. He made the earth. Silver and gold are just elements that come out of the thing that he made. That all belongs to him. You, you, that's his stuff. Okay, That's his stuff. It all belongs to him. Verse 9, the latter of the glory of the house will be the greater than the former. Thus says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. Shalom, declares the Lord of hosts. The word shalom, this word peace, 
It's actually a play on the name of the place. Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, is the city of peace. There will be peace in the city of peace. Right? Oh, the irony that Jerusalem is the city of peace, and you can turn on the news on any given week, and you see that it's a, a hotbed of conflict. It's a, it's a hotbed of conflict, and it will be until the, pre, the Prince of Peace comes. Peace will not come by man-made edifices or, or programs. And the people were off course. They had gotten distracted. They had given to despair and fear and division and the rest. And the prophet comes, and he points them to the city that is yet to come, Yerushalayim. He points them to the North Star, and he says, follow after that. Let me land this uh, sermon with just three points of application uh, as, we learn, as we learn from God's word. We've seen let God ask, listen to God's advice, learning God, God's application. Uh, we watch the news, we see the wickedness, we see what's going on in Afghanistan now, we see enemies, we see the Taliban taking over. It's 9-11 for Pete's sake. I don't know about you, but I feel a certain way about seeing a Taliban flag raised over the seat of power on 9-11 and seeing Taliban propaganda mocking the famous U.S. photo of the U.S. Marines in World War II. I feel a certain way about that, and that can get a hold of me. And I go, man, what's going on? What are these people doing? What are, you know, oh, my gosh. Ah. And then I read in the word, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am going to shake the nations. The nations will fall before him. All of the nations will fall before him. He is the Lord of glory. In, in fact, it's worth noting here really quickly, if you were reading from a different English translation, in Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, you had a little bit of a different wording here. Let me put the New King James in front of everyone so all of y'all can see this. In the New King James, you have this, I will shake the nations and, and they shall come to, look at this, the desire of all the nations. Some translators from the ancient world all the way up to today are, and I'll spare you because I'm trying to land the sermon here, all the linguistic stuff on this, but uh, whether or not that's actually a, an allusion to uh, the, the Messiah. Uh, Luther, for example, believed that. John Calvin wasn't quite as uh, committed, but you know, there's, there's messianic overtones in there, no doubt. In fact, Handel's famous Messiah, you, you, all, you all know that one, it incorporates this verse of the desire of the nations. Charles Wesley's uh, famous Christian hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it actually has this in the clause. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. And so, so here you have this messianic overtone. And as we, look at, as we look at war and terror, we need to be reminded that the Messiah is the answer to these things. We need to be reminded as we, as we, 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 we see in Haggai, we, we, we see Haggai chapter 2 being in the New Testament quoted by Hebrews 12, and we see the author in Hebrews chapter 12 telling us, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. The, 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 the calling of the people of God in the midst of war and terror is to come before the Lord and realize that but by grace we would stand in war with him and we would stand at, 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 in his wrath, in his terror, in his fury, but by his grace we can be redeemed through the desire of the nations. And the desire of the nations is the one, by way of application, that will carry us through these times of temptation. As Israel was in the Exodus in the wilderness for 40 years, as I shared with you, the desire of the nations, the Messiah, Jesus has come, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, and he conquered, and he came back. He recapitulates the history of Israel when you study the Gospel accounts. There's an exodus. He goes into the wilderness. He comes back into the land that's post-exile. He goes to the temple just like they go to the temple. And what does he do? He cleanses the temple. He readies the people for himself. And he calls the people, focus on your hearts. Focus on your hearts before the holy God. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire love. I desire love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Psalm 51, verse 16, for you, God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, you will not be pleased by a, a burnt offering. Thinking about the temple, think about what we read in the New Testament of St. Stephen, when the people, when the people were, would take his life, what, what did Stephen tell them? But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. The prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house are you going to build for me, says the Lord of hosts? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hands made all of these things? You stiff-necked people who resist the Holy Spirit. Left to our own brothers and sisters, we would resist the Spirit. Thanks to the grace 
of God, the Spirit has come, and he did not take no for an answer. He regenerated your hearts if you're in Christ, and he has indwelt you with the Spirit. He has made you from being an enemy with God to being a child of God, and he has called you to go in peace as ambassadors, as reconcilers in a world that is divided, and to proclaim the ultimate reconciliation that has come. And, and, and that has come, will come again, and that's the final point. We are called to wait in trust. There is a saying that if someone tells you you can't, they're showing you their limits and not yours. Now, that's a bit too self-help and life coachy for me, but uh, when someone says you can't and you're talking about the mission of God, then I'm, I'm going to say that shows me your limits of your view of God and your trust in Him. In these crazy times, we need to be called to build Christ's church. We need to be called to cry out to the fallen creation. And we need to close our ears when people say, you can't do that. The people don't want to hear that. People aren't going to do that. No, we're going to keep preaching Christ. We're going to keep calling sinners to be lost. I don't care if that's not popular. We're not going to go to this side because that'll get people or go to this side because that'll get people. We're just going to preach Christ and make everyone mad and pray that God saves people in the process, and we are going to trust the power of his word to do this. You know, I can relax on a plane even though I don't know the pilot. I can relax on a ship even though I don't know the captain. I, I, even though the bus driver is a stranger to me and might look a little sketchy, I can get on the metro and ride just fine. How much more can we and should we rest in the one that we do know who is driving history, who pilots by his providence, who is the captain of our souls? Brothers and sisters, keep focused on the North Star. Take the cup. Open the top. See this little wafer. The desire of the nations. The eternal son who became a man because men rebelled against the eternal creator. The eternal son who took on flesh was beaten and bruised and tempted and trialed and hated, attacked, misrepresented. He went through it all for us. Let's celebrate him as we eat. Come to the cup, a picture of his blood. When a body doesn't have blood in it, it's dead. You need blood to be alive. As the cup empties out in a moment in our mouth, we are reminded that he shed his blood. He bled out to death for us. So as we drink, we are reminded that by his blood we are cleansed. Our blood is contaminated. It's contaminated. You know, when you go to donate blood or whatever, and, you know, hey, you know, have you had this or this or this, that, that? Well, you can't donate blood. Why? It's contaminated. Our blood is contaminated. His blood is pure. His blood is cleansing. By his blood, we are cleansed. This is a picture of that. Let's partake. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to celebrate what the Lord has done in Christ to reconcile us to himself. Before I close in prayer, a final observation. On this weekend of 9-11, you remember 20 years ago? And those of you who aren't that old or whatever, but you've seen the news, you figure it out. Uh, 20 years ago, when 9-11 happened, we weren't exactly a unified nation. People hated the president at the time. Uh, you know, some, some loved him, some hated him. People were mad about this. People were mad about that. People were mad about this. 9-11 happened. Immediately, everyone pulled together. Presidents run around in the debris, you know, preaching his little heart out. And, you know, people who hated the president were crying. And, you know, uh, Giuliani running around. You know, everyone, people who don't like him, like, hey, everyone pulled together. You remember, not only did people pull together, I, I remember, I was, I was preaching back then, the churches start, people start piling into churches. 
Where was God in 9-11, people were asking. How do we make sense out of evil? What about the evil I feel within myself? There's like revival around that. There's a revival around that. People came together, and people were, were preaching Christ, and, 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 and it, was a, it, was, it was a horrible event, but people really pulled together. And that's my fear and my admonition to you as we're studying this post-exilic text and we find ourselves in a, kind of our own sort of a post-exile. This time around, when tragedy has hit, churches, Christians aren't even pulling together. They're tearing each other apart. Churches overcome by fear, national idolatry, a trust in powers, a trust in the man, the government, political philosophy, rather than Christ and identity in Christ. Identity politics is ripping believers apart. Our identity politic is Christ crucified, risen from the dead, coming for us. That's where our allegiance is. Brothers and sisters, as we continue studying this, let the text just marinate and do its work within you and trust and wait on the Lord to have his way in your hearts. The title of the sermon, listen to the Lord, hear the word of the Lord. Let me pray and let's sing. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the power of your word. Lord, I pray that you would bear much fruit in it. Uh, Lord, we, 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 confess, we confess, Lord, that uh, we don't always respond or react or interpret things that happen around us, to us, uh, the way that we ought to. I know in, the, in this room, Lord, there are people going through some hard stuff, uh, uh, divorce, sickness, illness, unemployment, hurt, regret, mistake. Lord, we thank you that your prophet Haggai reminded us that you are with us. We thank you that in chapter 2, he didn't just rant and rail and chew the people out, but he, he spoke of having courage having redemption and salvation and your, your, your spirit being there. And so, Lord, we receive that word of gospel. We receive your word of law. And we respond in repentance to your law. And we respond in faith to your gospel. Receive these songs of worship, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.